0: Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your co-hosts, Katie Halpert.
1: And I'm Mary Mette. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I see you're still in your Zoom hut slash sauna.
0: Yes, I'm in the Zoom hut slash sauna slash uh, outhouse. It is is only one of those three things, and it is a Zoom hut. Yeah, I'm away for this week, and I'm uh, in this interesting location. Makes for an interesting shot.
1: And uh, great awareness about the importance of sauna use. It is true. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, I like saunas. Are you a sauna person or a steward oh, yeah. person?
1: Oh, I'm a sauna person.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: Love the sauna.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: All right, well, should we get to it?
0: Yeah, let's just get into it. Four basic food groups, fam. Yes.
1: Well, so many candidates is always for Democrats suck. I know. This one, you guys have probably already seen it, but for old time's sake, let's uh, hear it one more time. Here we go. Here's Jill Biden speaking this week in Texas.
2: Diversity of this community as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio.
1: <laughs> so look, the controversy really around this is centered on her talking about breakfast tacos, comparing Latinos to breakfast tacos, and fair enough. I mean, that's a really ridiculous statement, but what has not gotten enough attention is that she also mispronounced bodegas. She called them yeah. bogadas. It's pretty hilarious.
0: Which is like she, I think, was saying the a, a major city in Colombia. Bogota.
1: A uh, Bogota. Yeah. Man, I, I think Bogota. that's what she was. Yeah. Yeah. But look, what um, Ashley Parker of the Washington Post points out in a tweet, which I think is a fair thing to bring up, but this is not just Dr. Jill Biden's gaffe, because look at what she reports. Worth noting that before Jill Biden made her taco gaffe, her entire speech was read and signed off by the White House Offices of Intergovernmental Affairs, Legislative Affairs, and Public Liaison. So this was vetted. People, professionals who work in communications, public relations, read this. And I'm like, yep, let's compare Latinos to uh, breakfast tacos. That's a good idea.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I understand like this is such low gaff. This is so low on the gaff scale for a Biden speech. (laughs) Like we wouldn't even be commenting on this if this were Joe Biden, but it's Jill. So our standards are a little bit higher.
1: So um, I have a bonus. uh, Democrats suck because there's also, you know, a war going on and into its, its fourth month and there's no end in sight. And this is from The Washington Post. So this is the Washington Post basically laying out the diplomatic strategy of the Biden administration when it comes to ending the war in Ukraine and engaging with Russia. This is what the Washington Post says. In the nearly five months since Russia invaded Ukraine, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has maintained the same posture toward Moscow. Do not engage. So do not engage. That is the Biden administration strategy in a nutshell. And what does that mean? It means that as this catastrophic war goes on, more people on all sides lose their lives. The rest of the world feels the repercussions, much higher energy prices, especially in uh, Europe and Asia and Africa, food prices soaring, millions of more people being pushed into famine, inflation rising at home. We've just gotten news of record inflation in the US. The Biden administration strategy towards the main belligerent in this conflict, which is Russia and its foe is do not engage. So basically let the war roll on.
0: Right. Just engage by arming Ukraine. But do not engage with the other side. Right. Yeah. Well, those certainly are Democrats sucking. Well, for Republicans suck, we have a nice uh, video. This uh, friend of show, Jake Tapper, was interviewing uh, former senior U.S. official John Bolton. Uh, He is a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and former White House National Security Advisor. And he worked for both um, Trump and uh, George W. Bush. So let's uh, hear what he had to say uh, on CNN to Jake Tapper. And this was after the uh, congressional hearing into January
3: 6th. Not heed the advice and keep shopping around until you end up with this group of misfits with uh, Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell. Um, is he just not capable of, of
2: hearing no? Well, when it comes to his personal advantage, the answer is he doesn't listen to anybody else. But I think this it's also important to understand, while nothing Donald Trump did after the election uh, in connection with the, the lie about the election fraud, none of it is defensible. None of it is defensible. Uh, it's also a mistake, as some people have said, including on the committee, the commentators, that somehow this was a carefully planned coup d'etat aimed at the Constitution. That's not the way Donald Trump does things. It's rambling from one half-vast idea to another. One plan that falls through and another comes up. That, that's what he was doing. As I say, none of it defensible. But you have to understand the nature of what the problem of Donald Trump is. He's, to use a Star Wars metaphor, a disturbance in the force. And it's not an attack on our democracy. It's Donald Trump looking out for Donald Trump. It's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence.
3: I don't know that I agree with you. To be to be uh, fair, with all due respect, uh, one doesn't
2: have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'état, yeah, not here, but you know, other places. Uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another.
0: Okay, so that's part one of it. So, and we should just talk about the fact that uh, it's kind of amazing that he, A, admits that he was involved in coup d'etat, not here, of course, but in other countries. And also that he's saying that you do have to be smart to do them because he knows that he's worked on them. So he's just bragging about being a smart person. And he's also just casually dropping the fact that he's worked on coups.
1: He says that uh, it's a lot of work.
0: It is a lot <laughs> yeah, of work. It's yeah. a lot of
1: work. I love this clip for so many reasons. It's John Bolton just being totally brutally honest about his own actions in plotting coups against foreign governments. And someone like Jake Tapper, whose job it is to whitewash coups like that, is obviously visibly uncomfortable. But then also he's Bolton is also simultaneously debunking this other fixation of Jake Tapper, which is that Trump was involved in this massive coup plot. So like this is like one of the most inconvenient comments right. that Jake Tapper has ever had to grapple with. And we'll see now how he responds to it. I, I do want
3: to ask a follow up um, when we were talking about what is capable, what you need to do to be able to plan a coup. And you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going
2: to get into the specifics, but um uh... Successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took for an opposition to try and overturn an illegally elected president, and they failed. The notion that Donald Trump was half as competent as the Venezuelan opposition is laughable. But I think there's a feel like
3: you're this other stuff you're not telling me, though.
2: I think I'm sure there is. I think there's another point here that that came out in the testimony that's not been stressed enough. Uh, testimony, a, a deposition testimony by I think his name was Donnell Harvin. I, I may have taken that down wrong. The, the chief of uh, intelligence and homeland security for the District of Columbia government who said we were watching Twitter after Trump's tweet calling for the demonstration on right. January the 6th. We saw all of these implications, all of the concerns about the violence. I want to know where the rest of the government was, and I particularly want to know where members of Congress were, if this was so evident at the time, why there wasn't more security on the Hill long before the the demonstrators ever turned up.
3: No, it's a good question. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people who just lived here and had been paying attention were aware that there was a real potential for violence on
0: that day. That's interesting, but because that's another kind of inconvenient question that all asked. but anyway the point is he's being a little coy about uh having helped launch uh unsuccessful coups and he just mentioned says as if it's statement of fact that you know maduro was elected illegally yeah and
1: look at jake tapper's response he's playful he's like i feel like there's stuff you're not telling me
2: yeah
0: (laughs)
1: like if that's the case, why don't you actually ask him a question instead of joking around like? Right. Instead of joking around with him like he's like your schoolhouse, your schoolyard buddy. Right. You know? But he is buddies with John Bolton on this because Jake Tapper supports coups that John Bolton and others launch, right. and it's a long list with John Bolton. I mean, obviously, he mentions Venezuela and he downplays. He says we didn't have much to do with it. Right. Yeah. Right. They helped organize everything. They bankrolled Juan Guaido and his clique. Uh, They impose murderous sanctions on Venezuela that try to basically make the population suffer into submission and accepting Juan Guaido as their new leader. And uh, that speaks to a point that, you know, I've talked about before, which is that's a real coup. What John Bolton is talking about is a real coup. And that's why this outrage over January 6th, I mean, again, what Trump did was horrible. He should have been impeached. But to pretend as if that was a real coup attempt while simultaneously applauding, as Democrats have done, Trump's actual coup effort in Venezuela. Recall that Nancy Pelosi gave Juan Guaido a standing ovation when he came before Congress. That's the real coup, and that's the real coups that both Democrats and Republicans support. And by the way, in John Bolton's case, there's also Haiti in 2004, and that was successful. The Bush administration overthrew Jean Bertrand Aristide for the second time in Haiti. First time he was overthrown by George W. Bush's father, George Bush in uh, the early 1990s, and when Aristide got reelected with overwhelming support from Haiti's poor majority, John Bolton and George W. Bush made sure he was ousted again, and that was a successful coup that John Bolton played a huge role in, and of course, Jake Tapper won't ask him about that because Jake Tapper doesn't care and he supports the policy.
0: He probably doesn't know also, honestly. He (laughs) probably has no idea who Aristide is. Yes.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
0: All right, so we got Dems stuck, we got Republicans stuck. Now let's go to Isn't That Weird?
1: Well, so for Isn't That Weird, we have a PSA coming out of uh, New York City.
4: So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why, just know that the big one has hit, okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement, head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right, you've got this.
1: Uh, Do we got this? I don't know. I don't know. Out of nowhere, we get this ad from New York City warning of a nuclear attack. And everyone's like, what the hell? Where is this coming from? Well, Eric Adams, the mayor, was asked about why they're putting this out. And this is what he said. It's in The Washington Post. So The Washington Post asks, does New York City know something that we don't? No, according to New York Mayor Eric Adams, it was simply, quote, a very proactive step, unquote, by the city's Office of Emergency Management. Adams said at a news conference on Tuesday, I'm a big believer in better safe than sorry. Adams said the video, which advised New Yorkers to get inside, stay inside and stay tuned, was sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was really taking necessary steps after what happened in Ukraine to give preparedness. So that's right. Because the U.S. has decided to use Ukraine for a proxy war against Russia, now New Yorkers are going to have to be warned of the likelihood or possibility of a nuclear attack and what to do, which includes, I guess, going inside. That's what we have to do, Katie. Yeah. If we get hit with a nuke, just go inside.
0: Go inside. Take off your clothes. Listen for updates. It's time to make friends with people who have basements. That's right. Stay close to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So our friend Max Blumenthal had a good response to this. Somebody tweeted out this video and said, why is NYC playing this commercial? And this is what Max said in response. Because a bipartisan coalition of neocons and liberal interventionists successfully instigated a new Cold War by orchestrating a coup in Kiev, criminalized diplomacy with Moscow through the Russiagate hoax, and stoked a proxy war in Ukraine that could turn nuclear very, very well response. said.
0: Yeah. Well, isn't that weird indeed? I mean, this is one of those isn't that weird flash isn't that terrible. There often is a fine line between the Yes,
1: two. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, What do we have for isn't that terrible?
0: So, for isn't that terrible, we have an interesting tale. Tales all this time, not really at all. For isn't that terrible, we have a a, a disturbing story. Um, if we could just go to the story, which uh, is in the New York Post, but uh, unfortunately does not have any puns, maybe because it's too terrible of a story. But trophy hunter who killed lions, elephants, is shot dead. An avid hunter of endangered animals was shot dead in South Africa after his truck broke down, according to new reports. Rian Naudi, the 55-year-old head of Pro Hunt Africa, was found dead next to his vehicle in Marken Road. Limpopo. Cops said they had no motive yet. Two hunting rifles were found in Nav's truck near the Kruger National Park Wildlife Reserve. Now, I don't like when people are killed ever. That's never a good thing. But I got to say that for me, the greater isn't that terrible in this story is his killing of endangered animals. That's the real isn't that terrible. And it's just disgusting, these photos of him posing with them. You see him with the, with the I think this is an elephant, you got a lion, it's, and uh, I'm just saying, maybe don't do that. And maybe then, if he di- weren't a killer of endangered species, then his death would be, my isn't that terrible? But sadly, the greater isn't that terrible is his killing of those endangered species.
1: Yeah, those photos are horrible. They're horrible, like yeah.
0: So I'm sorry that I couldn't say, isn't that terrible? Is your death again? It's not, it's not joyful. I'm not celebrating. Just saying certain certain life commitments means that your victims fate are more terrible than yours. That's the takeaway. I feel like we've all learned a lot between that PSA from New York and my PSA on not killing endangered species. <laughs> yeah.
1: I hope to never see photos like that again. Yeah. And, uh, certainly this guy will not be posing in them.
0: Right, that's yeah. true. Yeah. And here is a stone moment that we're gonna bring you. We got a great stone moment with uh, President of the United States, Joseph Biden. Mr.
2: President, what's your message to Democrats who don't want you to run again? Hey, they want me to run. Two thirds said they, they don't. The Read the polls, Jack. You guys are all the same. That poll showed that ninety-two percent of Democrats, if I ran, would vote for me. A majority of Democrats say they don't want you to run again in no, twenty twenty-four. Ninety-two percent said if I did they'd vote
0: for me. Read the polls, Jack.
1: The polls did show that the majority don't want him to right. run. So I'm not sure what he was talking about, but I guess if you look at it from the perspective of him sounding like he's stoned, then it makes then it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's our stone moment. So excited to be talking to Christopher Ryan. He is the author of Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships. And he's also the author of his most recent book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. And both are really interesting. I highly recommend them. And he is the host of the podcast Tangentially Speaking with Chris Ryan. You can find Chris's podcast at Substack. And speaking of Substack, make sure you become Substack subscribers to Useful Idiots at usefulidiots.substack.com because there we have an extended interview with Chris. I'm getting to all sorts of really interesting things about psychedelics, how to deal with the fear of death, uh, doctors giving themselves different treatments than they give to patients. Uh, Great, really great stuff.
1: All right, let's go to
5: Chris Ryan.
0: So welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks. Great to be with you, Katie.
0: So wanted to start off by asking you about your um, more recent book, uh, your most recent book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. What made you uh, write that book in the first place?
5: Uh, you mean besides the fact that a publisher gave me some money?
0: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Was it an external <laughs> idea or
5: no 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 i had the idea but i'm i'm by nature not a super productive person so unless there's like either a carrot or a stick I, i tend not to get much done um but in a way that's what that book's about right it's about our nature as as humans uh which is not to get up and work real hard and be super ambitious i think that's all a distorted worldview that's sort of Inculcated in us by a pathological society, but basically, what happened was um, when my wife and I wrote *Sex at Dawn*, the first book. You know, there was a lot of research that went into that. That book was based on my PhD dissertation and another ten years of research after I finished that. Finally, went into this book, and you know, when you're studying human sexual behavior in prehistory, you're looking at the whole world of prehistory. It's not just how did people relate sexually. You have to look at how they raised children, how they dealt with power and politics, how they dealt with economic questions, you know, to the extent that there were limited supplies that needed to be distributed. Um, There are lots of different aspects of life. How how are children raised? How do they deal with the death of elders? How do they deal with illness and healing and spiritual world? And, you know, all these different facets of life and Sex at Dawn was primarily about sexuality, but in the middle of it, I added this section that looked at those other issues. And it was maybe 10% of the whole text, right? And it was kind of like I was slipping a pill into a, you know, a piece of cheese for a dog. I just I wanted to get some of that information into the book, even though I knew the sexuality was what was going to you know, bring people's attention primarily. And then after the book came out, I got a lot of feedback from readers saying, hey, you know, I wish there were more about that other stuff. You know, the sexual stuff was really interesting, but I wish there was more about the daily life of hunter-gatherers and what can be learned about our ancestors from that. So that was sort of encouragement to say, okay, good, now I've got an opportunity to take that information, which I'd already done all the research and sort of you know, expand that into its own book.
0: And what about the uh, implications of what you discovered in uh, how it applies to politics?
5: To politics. Well, the first thing I would say we need to understand is that our ancestors were very likely living in small scale egalitarian uh, hunter-gatherer groups. Um, And we can get into the evidence for that if you'd like, but that's a pretty universally accepted um, understanding of of the social world of our ancestors beyond 10,000 years ago. And so you're looking at people where decisions are made on consensus. There's not really hierarchical top-down power structures. So you don't have some alpha male telling everybody what to do that's not the way it works. Women are extremely autonomous and respected among hunter-gatherer groups in general, and have every bit as much say in in group decisions as the men do. And these are what anthropologists refer to as fission-fusion groups, meaning that they break apart and come together, uh, depending on seasonal, how much food there is, whether they're, you know, seasonal festivals happening, things like that. So you're always free to leave if you don't like the way things are are going in the group you're in, or if you're having a spat with somebody and you just need some time away from them, there are other groups around. You have relatives and other groups. So you can just leave and go live with a a neighboring group for a while if you want, or for the rest of your life, if that's what you choose. Um, So we can extrapolate from that to be pretty confident that the politics was more bottom up than top down. Um, And then there are explicit studies of political behavior among hunter-gatherers that show some interesting things. Probably the most interesting is that the worst thing you can possibly do to become a leader is show any desire at all to be a leader. is considered a sign of dangerous mental illness and you are immediately disqualified. So any hunger for power, any sort of bossiness, anything like that, you're not, you lose respect. And the only way of accruing power in a hunter-gatherer group is by being respected. So you're respected because you have a history of making good decisions, of being kind to other people, of being generous. You know, even in in groups where there is a, a differential in resource acquisition, what you find is that the people who are considered to be the leaders are generally the people who have the least uh, amount of material possessions because they tend to give everything away, and that's where their respect and and what we might call political power derives from.
1: What happened? How do we lose that, and how do we get back to that? Because
5: that sounds great. <laughs> well, what happened? Uh, The argument that I make in Civilized to Death is that, generally speaking, we took a wrong turn about 10,000 years ago when humans adopted agriculture. And we started accumulating resources, accumulating land, accumulating animals, you know, harvesting foods that needed to be stored until the next harvest. And once you start living that way, a whole suite of cascading changes occurs in your social system. One of the first things that happens is that the status of women plummets uh, from being co-equal with men to being essentially breeding livestock. Um, If you look at the Old Testament, for example, there's the line, a man shall respect his neighbor's uh what is it no the man shall Don't not uh, covet, covet the neighbor's, neighbor's wife, wife. That, that's what it is if you read that in context what it goes on to say nor shall he covet his neighbor's house nor his slave nor his sheep nor his she-ass nor his ox right so the the neighbor's wife is just one of the possessions that you're not supposed to covet it, it's nothing about respecting the dignity of marriage or anything like that So anyway, that's one of the first things that happens is is women's status plummets from a co-equal status to where we still see societies like Afghanistan and Pakistan today, where women's real only value is to be a virginal, untouched uh, breeding opportunity for the husband. So that's pretty horrible. And And we can talk about evidence for why it happens that way and and, in different parts of the world and so on, but uh, that you also get the expansionist uh, sort of militaristic viewpoint, because in an agricultural society, population grows much faster because women don't breastfeed as long and they have higher body fat content. So they tend to ovulate more. So they get pregnant more often. So you, you have women having five or six kids rather than two or three kids in a lifetime. And so with that growing population, you need more land to produce more food. So then you get militaristic. You also have sort of a standing security force because you're harvesting lots of grain and that grain needs to be saved until next year. So someone needs to protect that and distribute it and all that. So all these different political changes happen both within the family and within the society when societies adopt agriculture and become larger scale.
0: One of the, uh, I really enjoyed your books, by the way, I listened to both of them on uh, tape and it's great because you read the civilized to death you're actually reading. One of the most interesting parts I thought about it was this section on, uh, quote, noble savages, savage noblemen and straw cavemen. Could you just share uh, a bit about the takeaways from that section also, uh, even just the origin of the term noble savage?
5: That was one of those things that I came across while researching the book that I I didn't know before I started working on it. Uh, I knew that the term noble savage was part of this sort of Hobbesian propaganda campaign that's been going on for 500 years or 400 years at this point. But the sort of corollary to it, the noble savage, I don't remember all the details. I have to say it's been a few years since I read the book. (laughs) People think if you write a book, you remember everything, but but what I remember most salient about that is that there was a French writer who was talking about reports that were coming back from the New World about the Native people and how they had the right to hunt wherever they wanted. They didn't work all day. They had tons of leisure time. They sat around telling stories. They had this incredible Freedom. They uh, weren't at the beck and call of any kings or administrators or anything like that. And he basically said, those savages live like nobility. Like they are like our princes and, and dukes and duchesses. They're not common men, the common man over there lives like our nobility. So that's where the phrase noble savage came from. It wasn't Rousseau who never used the phrase, as as far as I remember. That's part of a point that I was making throughout the book, that this uh, neo-Hobbesian view of human nature and prehistory permeates our society and is based on, is fueled by a desire to demonize our nature and our past. Uh, and isn't based on actual information. But unfortunately that view is so functional and useful for the power structures that be that it's very widespread.
0: And what about the, you, you kind of reject both Hobbes and Malthus and for people who aren't familiar with those two thinkers can you explain what it is that you're pushing back against?
5: So Thomas Hobbes famously said, life before the state was solitary poor nasty brutish and short Uh, that was in a book called leviathan that i think was published in 1650 something maybe now hobbes wasn't an anthropologist obviously anthropology didn't exist he had never traveled outside of europe he had no firsthand knowledge at all of how people were living outside of the state and in fact, his life inside of the state was horrible, miserable. He fled England under threat of being executed because of something he'd written. He hid out in France for a while. Then he had to flee France because he was in trouble for something he'd said or written there. There, you know, there are all these wars happening in Europe constantly. But somehow he concluded that life before the state was even worse than the life that he himself was living a classic case of projection, you know, there's there's a concept that uh, we introduced in Sex at Dawn called Flintstonization, which is the tendency to sort of look around us at the present and then project it into the past and say, well, it must have been like this, just a more primitive version of this, you know, which is a failure of imagination, which is totally understandable for people who, you know, didn't have any actual access to information like Hobbes, it turns out it's not a very good way of thinking about the past. Yeah, Hobbes envisioned the the life before the state as having been horrible in every way, constantly, uh, you know, at the edge of starvation, constant war with one another, Um, you know, men beat a woman over the head with a club and drag her off into the cave, you know, this sort of popularized vision of the caveman that, that we have, and that some people like Dawkins and and Steven Pinker still employ this, what I see as a purely propagandistic tool to promote certain pro-institution, pro-authority perspectives. So that's Hobbes, and the neo-Hobbesian vision is taking that sort of biased view of prehistory and human nature, which is very closely associated with the un- civilized state of humanity and projecting it in into the present and saying okay now we need the state to protect us from each other because if we take away you know the police force will all just rip each other off and tear each other to shreds like you know crazed chimpanzees or something um and what was the other that it was hobbes and who else oh malthus so thomas malthus famously, he's, he's a really interesting character, actually, because his father right. was a leading progressive thinker who hung out with all these, you know, what we would call, I think this was 18, early 1800s. Um, and he was hanging out with all these very progressive thinkers who were talking about things like universal basic income, what we call today universal basic income, feminism, equal rights for women. Um, you know, very sort of progressive forward thinking household. And, you know, like a lot of kids, he reacted against his father. And he wrote this essay, sort of explaining how his father and all his father's friends were these silly romantics, because they thought that you could actually help poor people when it was Obvious that you could never help poor people because the more food you give them, the more they'll reproduce. And the more they reproduce, they'll always be at the verge of starvation because they have no population control. And and he was basing the, the human sort of rate of reproduction on some very preliminary information that was coming back from the New World. Turns out to have been totally wrong. His calculations were way off. And there are all sorts of extenuating circumstances that undermine that perspective. But this is where the idea that the poor will always be with us comes from. And people still refer to Malthus when they're looking for arguments for why there's no sense in helping the poor and trying to you know, uh, bring up the state of, of poverty and despair, um, because they'll just keep breeding until they're right back where they started. And again, the the factual basis is non-existent, but the political power of this narrative is so useful that it's very hard to combat.
0: Or with climate change, for instance, like blaming people for, you know, having lots of kids, as if that's the problem and not the way we're-
5: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the litter thing, like it's all about how many plastic bags you use, not about the fact that Exxon is pumping oil into the oceans, you know?
1: You identified a shift happening in how we organize society happening around 10,000 years ago. Do you think it's possible that we can get back to a society that is more egalitarian or is that it? Like, are we just beyond the, are we just at the point of no return?
5: I think it's possible. I don't think, you know, we're not going to be hunter gatherers again, you know, unless there's like a serious apocalyptic kind of. This could uh, happen. Pivot point. Yes, it it can happen. And you know, I as I pointed out in Civilized to Death, every civilization that's ever existed has collapsed, every one. So, you know, there's a track record. And to think that we are somehow exempt from that is obviously not rational. The big difference is that previous civilizations that collapsed were regional. And this would be the first time that a global civilization has collapsed. Um, But the the bright side of that picture is that, you know, our understanding of these collapses generally comes from educated, upper-class people who were writing about it, Um, and their lives got significantly worse. But the lives of common people, in many cases, probably got a lot better, right, because these political structures of oppression fell apart. And so the people who were living in the countryside, growing their own food and had their own animals and and neighbors taking care of each other, their lives probably got much better. It was just the people in the urban centers um, that had a a real hard time. Um, But as far as uh, your question about whether we can get back there, I, I sort of, as I was writing the book, I started thinking a lot about Joseph Campbell and his understanding of the Hero with a Thousand Faces, which you guys have probably read. Um, For people who haven't read it, Joseph Campbell was a mythologist who um, studied mythological narratives all over the world. And he found that the origin story of different societies generally was the same story over and over and over again, but with different characters and different details. But the story was a young person or people leave from the home that they know. And they go out and they travel and explore and they have experiences from which they learn all sorts of things and near death experiences and all sorts of scary stuff happens. The Odyssey is, you know, our society's oldest example of this in the West. And then at some point they return back to where they started with all this knowledge that they gathered and they they bring the knowledge back and they improve the situation Uh, back home. And I I look at the trajectory of our species, and on good days, when I'm feeling kind of hopeful, I think maybe that's what we're doing. That's what we, and that's why we're at this point, I feel like we've been at this point, maybe starting 10 or 15 years ago, where it feels like more and more people are starting to look back right? When I was a kid, I'm 60. So I was a kid in the 60s and 70s. The future was going to be better, right? Everything, jetpacks and airplanes were getting faster and everything was more sort of efficient and cooler. And and then it started to sort of slow down and we lost confidence and, you know, the Reagan administration and all this sort of evil and nonsense. and, And I feel like we're at a point where if you want to understand the best way to do something, most people are looking back. They're saying, well, how did our ancestors do it? How did our ancestors raise kids? Um, Doctors are looking at evolutionary medicine. Everybody wants to know, you know, what's the paleolithic diet? What's the, you know, CrossFit is natural movement and, you know, get out and jump in a cold river and breathe the right way the human's supposed to breathe. Everybody's looking back at biology And uh, paleolithic studies to understand the best way to go forward is actually going back in some ways. And so that gives me hope that makes me feel like okay, maybe what we're doing is we've gone on this terrible tragic journey. Where we've, you know, enslaved each other and murdered each other and made so many terrible mistakes. But now we're turning back toward home with the knowledge that we've gained on this journey, like how to create energy from the sun and from flowing water and waves and that we have birth control uh, understanding now. We can actually control how many people are living on the planet, you know, not oppressively, not coercively, but just simply by um, incentivizing having fewer children and combining that with a universal basic income so that people aren't having kids to secure their old age they don't need to we can sort of nudge people in directions that end up being better for all of us so I hope that's what's happening I don't I you know as I say that's how I feel on good days Uh, bad days I have a different vision
0: (laughs) and what would that look like what are the ways that we could be turning towards the past because as you said we're not going to barring some cataclysmic event, apocalyptic event, there's not going to be a return to hunter-gatherers. What are the applications, though, that we can take away and apply to present day from your studies?
5: Yeah, sure. I mean, there are so many, right? Um, The importance, so let's start with psychological stuff, and then we can talk about physical and and medical, if you'd like, and, you know, and uh, social engineering and architecture. I mean, it really, my ambition with Civilized to Death was, of course, to to use some examples to illustrate the points I was making, but it was more importantly, I was trying to show people how to think. So, you know, it's a tool, and you can use this tool to investigate whatever interests you. You know, let's start with a basic premise. If you want to, if you have a dog, And you want to understand your dog's behavior. You want to have a better relationship with your dog. You don't go out and buy a book about ducks, right? Or penguins or snakes. You buy a book about wolves. You buy a book about the animal that your dog is most closely related to and how that animal lives in its natural state. And so that's why looking at hunter-gatherers is so valuable for understanding humans. We're animals. And so if you want to understand how we evolved, you want to look at the propensity the, the vast majority of the time that we've existed as an anatomically modern human, we've existed about 300,000 years. Uh, agriculture just started at the earliest 10,000 years ago. So already you're looking at at most, about three percent of our existence as a species. So clearly, if you want to understand humanity, you want to look at hunter-gatherers. As far as practical stuff in in terms of um, psych- psychological factors, one of the things I say to people is: if you're feeling unhappy, if you're depressed, if your life feels empty, first of all, it's not your fault. You live in a society that is full of false promises, telling you what's going to make you happy are things that benefit the society that they don't benefit individual humans. The few, the proud, the brave join the Marines. Well, that's not going to be good for you. Very unlikely that that's going to be good for you. It's not even good good... for
0: society. It's good for certain powerful people in society, right? right?
5: Or corporations. Corporations, Yeah. yeah. Um anyway so the best thing you can do this is scientifically verified over and over and over again to feel better about your life is to go and help somebody preferably a stranger that is demonstrably the most effective thing you can do to feel better now that sounds like i'm saying be like jesus you know be be an ideal human being i'm not this is very practical the reason that feels so good is that the reason our our species has survived is that we've helped each other for 300,000 years we've been watching each other's backs that's what we do as a species better than any other species, we form these interdependent intimate social groups hunter gatherer bands that's why people love being on teams that's why it's so painful when you're ejected from a group of friends right get fired from a job where you have friends. It's horrible, not just because of the economics of it, but because you love those people in a way. You depended on those people. They depended on you. It gives your life meaning. We're a highly social species, and yet more of us live alone than ever before in the history of humanity. You know, that's just an example of something that's a very practical, actionable insight that you can get when you look at our species as a species. We're super Social. What's the worst punishment we give to somebody? The worst murderer.
0: Solitary confinement. Exactly.
5: So these guys would rather be in the general prison population than alone. That's how painful it is to be alone for our species. So yeah, that's, you know, that's one thing. Another thing is, uh, you know, think about how much money are you spending on shit that's supposed to make you happy that you know won't. Right. And all it does is further embed you in the grinding wheel of selling your time for way less than it's worth. Right. Money can always be replaced. Time can't. Um, so I don't have a house. I'm talking to you from a Airbnb in Tbilisi, Georgia, right now. And the closest thing I have to a house is a Sprinter van that I live in half the year called Scarlet Jovanson. Um And, uh, you know, I sit by fires and I look at the stars and I lie in a hammock and I jump in rivers and I spend very little money because I'm camping out on public land in the U.S. and my quality of life is off the charts. It's fantastic. And I have no mortgage and no debt and no problem. And I'm not saying everyone can do that either. People have kids, people have mortgages, people have commitments, But I'm saying that there are ways that you can tweak your life to bring more of these sort of primordial satisfactions into it and filter out a lot of the modern bullshit that we're being sold.
0: Are you allowed to have coffee? Does coffee work on your lifestyle? Uh,
5: Indispensable. Okay, good. What does uh, jumping in
1: rivers do for you? The The reason I ask is because when I'm feeling down, I have a cold shower and it really works, it it wakes up something in me, it wakes up the part of me that wants to live and actually <laughs> exist. So I'm, yeah. I'm curious, you know, since you mentioned that what it does, what it does for you.
5: Yeah, I mean, it definitely has physiological effects. And I know Wim Hof, by the way, I don't know if that's your if he's yeah, your yeah that's what I was referencing. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, did a podcast uh, years, four or five years ago, uh, Wim agreed to be on my podcast. And they wanted to set up a zoom thing. And I was living in Spain at the time. And I was like, no, man, I'll come to Holland. I want to meet this guy. If you'll (laughs) let me, I'll come. And they were like, I was talking with his son at the time and they're like, yeah, sure. Okay. Come on up. And um, I met Wim and his uh, son and his daughter and uh, spent some time with them. And then they came to Spain and we went hiking and I've seen Wim all over the world since then. Um, And You know, honestly, I've never done the breathing techniques. I've never learned the Wim Hof method, but I did get in the ice barrel with him, which was a a high point. And jumping in rivers, for me, it has the physiological thing you're talking about. It's like, like, wow, that's, and, you know, I don't know, what's the word, uh, invigorating. But for me, I think it's more valuable or more of the value is psychological um, because it's something that I never it never gets easy. It never is like, okay, this is going to be great. I can't wait to jump in this freezing cold river. It's that moment of jumping is always like, oh no, why did I do this? And then you hit the water and you have that experience. And then you're like, wow, that was great. And so I think there's some value in just constantly repeating that sort of micro lesson in my mind that like, Doing the thing I know is ultimately good, even though in the moment I don't want to do it, is right. That's what I should do. And just every day, like, learn it again and again and again. Because, I mean, as I said earlier, I'm not a particularly disciplined or ambitious person. I'd much rather lie in the hammock and relax and, you know, read a book than than sit down and write one. And so that micro lesson is really helpful for me every day. Like, no, dude, do that thing you wanna do because it's worth it, It, it'll work out for you.
0: Another interesting section in your book, speaking of things that you can do to make yourself feel better, was the one about the war on drugs and um, the power of psychedelics. I had heard a lot about the war on drugs in terms of Nixon, but I hadn't learned about the more recent stuff with like MDMA. Uh, Can you talk about that? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com That was great.
2: Really
1: interesting guy. Yeah. Thank you, Katie, for bringing him into uh, the useful Idiots world. That was a great guest. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Learned a lot from his books. Enjoy his podcast, Tangentially Speaking, which is on Substack, by the way.
1: And you know, one thing i forgot to say and i think i think chris spoke to it too which is that even discussing things like psychedelics and wellness methods and ways to live in the world that for some people just these things are not accessible some people right. are so consumed with work supporting themselves that doing the things that other people can do like to work on themselves are just not even an option you know And the world can be so challenging that, you know, some people just want to actually retreat and be alone and uh, not be in public spaces. So it's like, you know, everything is done. Everything is discussed within one's own context and one's own worldview. And I just I always feel the need to acknowledge that whenever we're talking about things that are not accessible to everybody, Mm. things like psychedelics and other therapeutic methods.
0: Yeah. So definitely, guys, you're going to want to join the Substack because we have a great chat about uh, psychedelics. Uh, some stuff about sex, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but minus the rock and roll.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you can do that at usefulidiots.substack.com where you sign up to get bonus content like the extras from today's interview with Christopher Wren.
0: All right. Thanks so much for listening and watching and we'll see you next week. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash UsefulIdiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.